You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul the Apostle in this third chapter is overwhelmed with two incredible realities. Number one, Paul is overwhelmed with the thought of the mystery of God. He's been talking about the gospel, what the Lord has done in our lives, our great position in Christ, that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that we have already been given every spiritual blessing uh, in Christ. And as he rejoices over these things, he celebrates here in Ephesians 3 the mystery of God, and especially the mystery that the gospel would expand and reach into the Gentile world. He'll continue upon that theme. But he also rejoices over the mission that God had placed inside of his life. And as Paul rejoices over this mission in the first part of Ephesians chapter 3, we get a nice insight into the mission that God has given the church of Jesus Christ collectively. Now, Paul, of course, had a very unique role in the body of Christ and was used in a very specific and unique way to bring the gospel, the mystery, into the Gentile world. But we, of course, as the church, continue on in that mission and in that ministry to declare the mystery of God in Christ Jesus. So as Paul rejoices, we rejoice uh, as well. And then finally, at the close of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul will pray for the Ephesian church before he moves into the applicational uh, section of uh, this letter in Ephesians chapter 4. He starts out in verse 1 and he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard, verse 2, of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight, verse 4, into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. First of all, notice the way in which Paul speaks of himself. He says, listen, I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of of you Gentiles. There was Paul in Rome, in prison, uh, not free to go wherever he wanted to because of the Roman Empire, but he did not refer to himself as a prisoner of Rome. He referred to himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And I found that it changes everything to understand the sovereign hand of God upon your life, that, that God is in control. When you have that view, it changes everything about what you're facing and what you're going through. And Paul was not so concerned about what God was doing to him, but what God would do through him as he sat there in prison. But he said beyond that, that he was a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. In other words, Paul saw his imprisonment as something that was a direct result 
of his ministry to the Gentile world. And in one sense, it was a very direct result of that ministry to the Gentile world. When Paul was in Rome and went in, or in uh, Jerusalem and went into the temple to uh, worship, the rumor began to spread that he had brought Trophimus, a Gentile, into a place forbidden uh, for Gentiles to enter into. And as that rumor began to swirl, even though it was untrue, uh, people began to want to take his life. And so the Romans came down and delivered him, but then gave him an opportunity to speak to the crowd that was there gathered. And they silently listened as Paul declared his testimony, spoke of what Christ had done in his life. He talked about his conversion, what Jesus had meant to him. But once Paul announced to them that Christ had asked him to take this message to the Gentiles, upon hearing that word, they began to tear their garments and throw dust in the air, and he was swept away into that Roman imprisonment and eventually had to appeal to Caesar in Rome in order to get a fair trial. Paul knew that he was specifically a prisoner because of what he had done for the Gentile world and how it would serve the body of Christ for us to see ourselves as prisoners for the world in which we live, willing to do whatever it takes sacrificially in order to reach our world. But Paul, of course, went on beyond just calling himself a prisoner of Christ or for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. In verse 2, we read it already, he spoke of this stewardship that he had been given, a stewardship of, he says, God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, the word stewardship is the kind of word that you would use to describe someone who was in charge of a household. Perhaps a wealthy landowner has a large household with many affairs. There would be a manager of that household who would organize the uh, possessions, take care of the buying and the selling, and would, in one sense, run the household for the owner who would employ this steward, this manager. And Paul saw himself as a steward of something very specific. He says, of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, as he spoke to these Gentiles there in Ephesus. Paul saw himself as someone who was uh, managing and uh, taking care of the mystery of Christ. It had been entrusted into his care. And, of course, the church is also entrusted with the mystery of Christ. You know, some will say that it's very important for us to demonstrate the gospel, to live the gospel, and if necessary, use words. But I'm so glad that in recent years there seems to have been a resurgence of the idea that the gospel uh, requires words. You have to speak the gospel, and, and oftentimes it's very uh, confrontational, oftentimes very controversial. Our world loves to talk about sin in general, sin cosmically. Everybody admit, admits that there is something wrong with the world in which we live, but people don't like to talk about sin personally. 
And that's what the gospel requires, not just a cosmic or universal belief in sin, but personal sin. And so Paul tells us, listen, I'm a steward. And we, of course, would learn from him as well. We are stewards of the gr grace of God, the message of the gospel as well. Well, Paul said to them in verse 3, he said, And you know that that mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Now, we, of course, remember Paul's radical conversion story and how the Lord revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, knocked him down to the ground, said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And the Lord began to show him almost immediately that he would take the gospel into the Gentile uh, world. And so Paul had received this revelation uh, from the Lord. He calls it in verse 4, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Again, another way to refer to the message of the gospel, which verse 5 was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, these are things that if someone today were to come and say to us, we might reject them outright and reject them quickly, and we would be right in doing so. If someone comes up to us and says, hey, I want to tell you about a mystery that up to this point, no one else has been able to discover, uh, but God has revealed it to me. Uh, we would reject them quickly. But Paul and, of course, the, the other disciples who made up the apostolic band, these were men who were hand-selected by Jesus, who Jesus communicated and said they would be the ones led by the Spirit who would speak to the church. And so we have a foundation of Christ built upon that foundation is the work and word of the apostles. And so Paul says, listen, I, it's been revealed to his holy uh, apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He goes on in verse 6 and says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, like we've said before, a mystery in the New Testament is something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed. And quite often the mystery that is being referred to in the mystery of the gospel is a specific portion of the gospel. And that's what Paul alludes to here in verse 6, that Gentiles would be fellow heirs. We dealt with this back in chapter 2. And of course, fellow heirs with Jews, that there would be the opportunity for them to be members of the church, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus or the Messiah through the gospel. So the mystery specifically was that uh, the Gentile wor world would be able to become heirs and members and partakers of uh, Christ. And so Paul said, listen, I am uh, an ambassador of this reality. Uh, the Lord has given me this mystery, and I need to communicate it 
to the world in which I live. An ambassador of reconciliation is what Paul saw himself as, and that's what he told the the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 to 20. He was so excited about this particular message of reconciliation. Paul just couldn't wait to announce to the Gentile world that they could also receive the Messiah and be reconciled unto God. Now, verse 7, uh, he speaks of himself not just as a reconciler or an ambassador, but as a servant. And the church, of course, is to be a servant, serving the world, the community that we live in. Uh, of course, many have made the error of wanting to only show the gospel without ever saying the gospel. Uh, so we know that we are to say the gospel as well, but we should show it. And he says in verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so Paul announces a few things about himself. First of all, he calls himself a minister. He says, I've been made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now, I think most parents in the era that we live in, if their child tells them that they want to grow up and become a minister, probably many people are terrified of that idea. But even still, it has a better connotation than what Paul was actually saying. The word minister is an idea of a slave or a servant. And Paul saw himself as a slave or as a servant according to the gift of God's grace. He just was there to serve, to uh, you know, wash feet, to uh, really uh, take care of that overall mission to preach to the Gentile world. He called himself in verse 8, the very least of all the saints. You know, it's interesting to read the uh, autobiographical comments of Paul the Apostle about himself. In 1 Corinthians, he told them that he was the least of the apostles. Here he tells the Ephesians that he's the least of all the saints. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul told Timothy that he was the chiefest of sinners. And so with Paul, there was just really this humility, perhaps even a growing humility over the years where he saw less and thought less and less of himself as time went on and he grew closer and closer to Christ. His mission, verse 8, was very simple, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He just couldn't wait to unfold for them the great riches of Jesus Christ. And, you know, once a believer stops searching out the unsearchable riches of Christ, once they feel that they've exhausted those things, they begin to turn to other philosophies, other ideas, things that are in addition to Christ, in addition to the Word of God. But the reality is there is no addition, it's replacement. That's what's happening, it's replacement. You're replacing the power, the fullness, the depth, of a simple relationship with Jesus Christ that produces results 
in your character and in your sanctification, you're replacing that, that with something less. That's, of course, what the Colossian church was struggling with. And Paul just announces, he says, listen, my whole mission is to announce, to teach, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Would to God that we continue to search out the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. He goes on to declare in verse 9 that another part of his job was to bring light, verse 9, to, for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He basically is declaring, listen, I'm not just a servant and uh, not just an ambassador or manager of the gospel or a prisoner for the gospel. I'm an enlightener. I bring light to the world in which uh, I uh, live. He's bringing it to light so that through the church, verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is God's wild delivery mechanism of the truth. To, to think that the God of the universe, you know, who could communicate to the world in any way in which he chooses would choose to communicate to the world through the body of Christ, through the church, is a wild proposition. Jesus, of course, looking at his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, announced to them that they were the salt of the earth, that they were the light of the world. Now, just this humble little group of men, the Lord speaks to them and said, you are very influential, salt of the earth, light of the world. God could have announced it with the angelic realm, could have written it in the sky. But I think what the Father is continually looking for is true faith in him. He's not going to twist anyone's arm or force feed anyone this gospel message. So he uses the foolish thing of the world to confound that which is wise. He uses the delivery system of the body of Christ to communicate the gospel. We are bringing to light the mystery that has been hidden for the ages. Let the church not forget that. We are proclaimers of the gospel. We are heralds of that great mystery. He says, verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so Paul announces to them, listen, all of this was done according to the eternal purpose of the Father. And in Jesus, we have boldness, we have access, we have confidence through our faith in him. We have all of this before our Father. Just an incredible reality for the Christian. I know so often I wake up with a lack of confidence. I'm kind of one of those people who is just hard on himself. And I have high expectations. And it's not that I'm without sin. There are many times that I'm very wrong and need to repent. But quite often I'll do fairly well in a day, but go home at the end of the day feeling as if 
I should have accomplished more and I should have worked harder. A job that will take three hours to get done, I will relentlessly schedule an hour and a half into my schedule or day to get that three hour job done. I just have a lack of perspective as to what I can actually accomplish. And I'm sure a lot of that is just rooted in my own pride. Sometimes I'll wake up with just this sense of condemnation upon my heart and to understand that I have boldness, that I have access, that I have confidence uh, before my Father through my faith in Christ Jesus brings incredible comfort to my, my heart. So he says in verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So much of what Paul was saying here was designed to comfort the disturbed heart of the Ephesian church. As they heard of Paul in prison, they were worried for him. They were concerned about him. And Paul says, listen, I am in love with this ministry. I am in love with this responsibility because I am in love with the Lord. So don't worry about me and the things that I'm suffering for you. Which segued perfectly into his prayer for the Ephesian church to close out Ephesians chapter 3. He says, for this reason, you know, his deep love for them, his deep care for them. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. You know, I worship the Lord and I bow down before him uh, because of my great love for you. And so he uh, uses a, an expression for prayer when he says, I bow my knees before the Father. It's a, it's a way of saying, I'm praying for you, church in Ephesus. And uh, of course, speaks to physical posture, but that physical posture was supposed to illuminate the heart. I mean, in scripture, you see people standing in prayer, sitting in prayer, falling on their face in prayer. It's the heart that matters. And so Paul bows the knees, his heart is bowed before the Lord, uh, before the Father from whom every, he says, verse 15, family in heaven and on earth is named. He, he, prays, uh, he, he prays bowing his knees, but he prays to the Father, before the Father. He knows exactly where his prayer is going. He says in verse 16, he says that according to the riches of his glory, here's what he prayed for. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So really, bottom lining it, what was Paul praying for the Ephesian church? Well, he was praying for them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He was praying for them to have spiritual strength, number one. Absolutely beautiful. Now, the kind of strength that he wanted them to have was the kind that was according to, his, to the riches of his glory. Uh, that the, the kind of power that God has would be the kind of power that they were able to, t to uh, tap into. So a prayer for spiritual strength. You know, it's interesting. So many of Paul's prayers, as we read them, as we study them, they are almost always for the spiritual strength well-being and welfare of the church. 
Not that it's wrong to pray for that which is physical. We're to call for the elders of the church to pray for and anoint with oil those who are sick. But there's a spiritual emphasis, an inner emphasis uh, in the prayer life of Paul and in the prayer life of those in Scripture. And so he prays for them to have spiritual strength, just an ability to be strong in this world in which we live. And what a great way to pray for the modern church, that they would be strengthened. We live in a world that is uh, on the attack and uh, hostile in an increasing way, I think, to believers. And so for to pray for believers to have a strength and to have power, a wonderful way to pray for them. Number two, he also prays for them. Verse 17, he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. He, he secondly prays for them not just to have strength, but also that Christ would dwell in their hearts, just abide in their hearts, and that they'd be rooted, that they'd be grounded in love. He's praying for them to be able to go deeper in their walk with God, deeper in their relationship with Christ, to get uh, the love of God deep inside their system, to be rooted in it, to be grounded in it, to have it something that is firm inside of them, and uh, to have his love rooted in you, but to be standed, standing or grounded upon uh, his love. And this, of course, comes through years of just relationally and, and prayerfully studying the message of the gospel as revealed to us in the New Testament. God's Word, just getting into it, discovering His grace, His mercy. And as you do, you become rooted in His love. You become grounded uh, upon His love because the gospel weaves itself inside your heart more and more. But He prays for them that that would occur in their lives. And also, verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He, again, in praying for them to know the love of God, the love of Christ, he prays this prayer for, for comprehension for them. Spiritual strength, number one. Depth, number two. But spiritual comprehension, number three. That they might comprehend, he says. That they might know what it means to have this deep uh, relationship with the Lord and the, the love of Christ flowing uh, towards them, to know it and grasp it themselves, to just stand still and consider and soak in the love of God. What a great prayer from Paul to the Ephesian church, to comprehend the love of God. And he called it, he called it this, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ that passes knowledge causes us to go back to the book of Genesis chapter 13 and think about the time that Abraham was urged by God to walk through the promised land and walk north, south, east, and west, walk all through it and discover what God had promised to him and to his descendants. And to just discover, to know the fullness of the love of Christ for us, it takes a lifetime 
to discover and will be discovering it for all of eternity that you, verse 19, may be filled with all the fullness of God. A prayer for them to be full, mature, just satiated with the love of God. Now, verse 20, he closes out the chapter with a brief benediction. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's ultimate goal in prayer was the glory of God. And I think that Jesus reflects this in Matthew chapter 6 when he teaches us to pray. He says, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's prayer request number one for the Christian, that God's name would be revered, that God's name would be hallowed, that God's name and reputation would be glorified. And Paul prayed the same way before he shifted in chapter 4 into the applicational section of Ephesians. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.